good morning, and, and thank you so much for the opportunity to come and be with you. I'm very appreciative uh, to Douglas Brown for all the work that he's put in and making this weekend happen. And, of course, I've been humbled to be invited to come and be able to do this with you. It is uh, exciting to come and, and, and find on a weekend so many people who want to come and dig in and study uh, First and Second Peter uh, over, over the whole weekend. That's something, as, as somebody who teaches biblical studies, that just warms my heart and gets me excited. And I'm not hard to get excited, uh, as my, my students will tell you. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I was passionate uh, to be able to share some things from First Peter yesterday. We'll, we'll see how passionate I am about Second Peter this afternoon. Uh, I've spent less time with Second Peter than I have with First Peter, but but there are there's some beautiful things there as well that we'll be able to dig into uh, this afternoon. And so so I want to thank you for for this opportunity. It is it is a huge blessing for me to be able to come and be here with you. And, and uh, if we were here yesterday, then we spent a lot of time trying to set the, the larger framework for what's going on in First Peter. What's the situation of the people that he's writing to? And if we can keep that in mind, how does that help us understand some of the specific things that he says to them? And if we can understand those specific things that he says to them in that context, then we're maybe better situated to be able to imagine what First Peter might have to say to us. And so again, I want to provide some of that overarching context as we, as we, as we wheel down and look at uh, some specific imagery that Peter gives us uh, in chapter 2 in the passage we heard from Wythish already this morning. The big picture here is that Peter is describing the experience of his audience that he's writing to in 1 Peter as exile. He uses that language over and over again. He introduces them as exiles in the diaspora. He, he refers to their time in exile. In the passage we already heard, he talks about their sojourn and their exile. That's the language he uses. That's the metaphorical world he's imagining for their experience. Insulted, reviled, slandered, maligned, and ostracized because of their partici participation in the Christian community, they feel like outsiders in their own neighborhoods, aliens and, and foreigners in a place that I think used to be home for them. And so he writes to them to encourage them to remain faithful during their suffering. Don't give up because your neighbors, friends, and family heap abuse and shame on you. Don't doubt the assurance of Christ's victory and his return because it seems far away at the present time. He writes to them to help them survive their sojourn, to help them flourish even in the midst of exile. And so what advice does he offer? Well, that's part of what we've been spending this weekend digging into. But at least in part, he tells them this in chapter 2. Be the temple. That's what we heard there in chapter 2. And I don't want us to hear it again. But I think, I think it's, it, to, to hear Scripture told is a different experience than to read it ourselves. And to hear it in Moises' voice with the intonation and the pauses and the emphasis he gives, gives us one experience of Scripture. To hear it again in my voice might open up other things that we're seeing. So I want us to hear these, these verses again from 1 Peter chapter 2, picking up in verse 4. And what I would ask for you at this point is just, just listen. Right? You can have your Bibles out and take notes later. Right? But right now, just let the word be heard in here. As you come to him, a living stone re rejected by humans, but in God's sight, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it, it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever trusts in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who disobey the word, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they do not obey the word as they were destined to, you, to do. 
but you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so, beloved, I, I urge you as exiles and sojourners to abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That's the message he has for them in exile. How are they going to survive? How are they going to flourish? And even though the word temple never appears in these verses, the, the temple imagery dominates it, right? They are being built into a spiritual house where they can serve as a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices. That's all temple imagery. We're imagining a temple being built here. But what does it mean for them to be the temple? And how can that be an image of, of flourishing in exile? Well, first, as we're unpacking this, I think we need to recognize that in the imagery of these verses, there are two different building projects that are going on. We've got two different foundations being laid for two different structures. And there are builders who are building one thing. And they reject Jesus as a functional cornerstone for the structure that they want to build. And then there's God, on the other hand, who chooses Jesus to establish the foundation of what he's building. And it might help at this point, maybe, to say a word about cornerstones and, and their function. So fair warning, I am a Bible professor, not an architect. Basically, as I understand it, which has to be a simple way of understanding it, a cornerstone is set in the corner okay, of the foundation. And it establishes the, the plumb lines for the rest of the foundation and for the building as it's built up. So you need to have nice, square, neat corners, right, perfectly square, because all the other stones are going to be lined up next to this cornerstone as they go out to fill in the, in the foundation. So a square cornerstone, right, will set the foundation is you make sure you've got a nice, square, stable foundation, but also, right, it's setting the plumb line as it goes up. The building, as it's built on top of this cornerstone, will use that as the line as it goes up, right? And that's what a cornerstone does. So it is essential uh, that you have a good cornerstone. You must choose carefully. A well-crafted cornerstone with precise, neat angles will provide the straight plumb lines needed to construct a solid building. A hastily cut stone with, with wonky sides, I think that's the official term, or other cracks or imperfections cannot serve as a cornerstone. That is, unless you want a building to lean and eventually crumble. And so, in, in the metaphor that Peter uses, what's happening here is that the builders take a look at Jesus and determine, uh, that's not going to do as a cornerstone. You can't build the structure that we're putting together with this setting the plumb line. But, but why do they find Jesus so deserving of rejection? Well, here, I think maybe a well-known passage from, from Paul actually might help explain. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is challenging the Corinthians to rethink their understanding of wisdom, strength, and power based on the upside-down logic of the cross. He writes to the Corinthians, For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Right, we've got even some similar language from 1 Peter here, right? A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. 
to Gentiles, worshiping and following a crucified Messiah is foolishness. To them, Jesus is a poor, uneducated, menial laborer from the back country of the Roman Empire who got himself executed as a criminal. If you want success, power, reputation, or or just general well-being, you don't start with that as your foundation. Toss that stone back. And for his fellow Jews, on the other hand, Jesus failed miserably as a Messiah. Israel's deliverer was supposed to sweep into the promised land, crush those who had oppressed her people, and reestablish the king kingdom as it was with David. But Jesus didn't fight. He died, shamed and, and humiliated on the cross. You know, if you want victory and freedom, you don't start with this as your foundation. Cast that stone back to the heap. But the stone that the builders rejected because it was too insignificant or too weak to build anything meaningful, God saw and chose as something precious. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. What looked like weakness to others, that vulnerable self-emptying that led to death on the cross, would be the plumb lines for his temple. Now, two quick reflections maybe on, on this first point. If we see these two different building projects going on in these verses in in 1 Peter 2, it might be worth our asking, which construction crew are you working with? Are you building on a foundation of success, power, reputation, and acquisition as the cornerstone to a good life? Because there's lots of people around us who tell us that's how you get a good life. Is that what you're trusting in? Is that what you're building on? Is that your cornerstone? If so, the cross is not going to be much use to you. Or are you embracing the foolishness of God to find the true flourishing built on a foundation of vulnerable, self-emptying love? If that's the case for you, the crucified Messiah is your plumb line. Second, and kind of slightly different angle to, to think about and reflect on this image, rejection by other builders does not disqualify you for use in God's temple. In fact, it just might be a prerequisite. What others blindly cast aside, God chooses as precious and valuable. Like Joseph, for example, the annoying and infuriating younger brother who was left for dead, but who God used to save his own family. Like David, the runt whose own father assumed he could never be king and who messed up royally as king over and over again, but who God used to lead a nation. Like Peter, we might say, an uneducated, hard-headed fisherman who denied Jesus in his hour of need, but who God used as the rock on which he built his church. Like you, the obvious mess-up, or or maybe the hiding pretender, or uh, I don't know, right? I don't know you. You know you. I'll let you fill in the blank. You know your own cracks and imperfections, your own jagged edges and crumbling corners better than I do. You know what it is about you that would make you a really poor cornerstone or a really poor stone to build a building out of. You know those things. But like the rejected stone that he set as the cornerstone for his temple, God chooses you as living stones to be part of the spiritual house that he's building. And once this temple is built, the next question is, what's it supposed to do? What is the function of this temple that God is building out of these living stones? And Peter, I think, addresses this in the second part of the passage we heard this morning. That's part of why I wanted to go all the way uh, uh, into a little bit further into chapter 2. 
I didn't hear some of what he says to the sojourners and exiles. That really starts a new section, but I think it's connected because it's showing us part of how the temple is supposed to function as Peter imagined it. Basically, I would say that this temple, constructed of jagged-edged, squirrely-angled, rejected stones, is intended to radiate God outward rather than sealing him up inside. The temple is a holy space, to be sure. But we need to think carefully about how we define holiness, making sure that we define it according to God's character. After all, God tells us, tells the Israelites in Leviticus 19, and, and Peter repeats it in his own letter, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He is the definition and measure of what holiness is. So what does God's holiness look like? Well, again, to jump to another place outside of 1 Peter, I think the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus offers in Matthew is a pretty good place to go if we want to spell, spell out what God's holiness looks like, and by extension then, what the holy community should look like who follows this God. And in the middle of the sermon, in Matthew 5, 48, at a climactic moment in the sermon, Jesus uh, restates in slightly different language this language from Leviticus 19, this call to be holy. He says to his disciples at this climax of the sermon, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But what does God's holiness perfection look like? I think the preceding verses paint the picture, and it's, it's a compelling picture as well as it is surprising. If we go back and look in verse 43, Jesus begins this section of the sermon with a contrast. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the command to love your neighbor is found in Leviticus 19, along with this call to be holy. And so that's another good reason to think that's, the, that's what Jesus is working with here in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. Though it does not say in Leviticus 19 that people should hate their enemies. In fact, it's hard to find any place in the law that says it in exactly those kinds of terms. So it's probably more likely that, that at this point in, in his sermon, Jesus is not interacting so much with the law itself, but with, with the way the law has been interpreted or taught by people who are around him. Right, but wherever this command comes from, to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, notice it's, it's insular focus. Love the insiders. Keep the outsiders at arm's length. And there's, there's a way in which that makes sense. There's, there's a way in which that would seem to support efforts to keep the community holy. Keep the possible unrighteous contaminants far away from the pure community. But Jesus says, no. That, that's not what God's holiness looks like. And therefore, that's not what the holy community should look like. Jesus goes on, right? But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecutes you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? No offense, tax collectors. And if you greet only your own brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? No offense, Gentiles. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. We get a picture of what God's holiness looks like. That how does how does Jesus say that God should that God's people should be holy and perfect as He is holy and perfect? Not by remaining aloof from the unrighteous, to be like God who gives rain and sunshine to all. The holy community must love both neighbors and enemies. Truly, God is holy and set apart. But but in some ways, what most sets Him apart from all other gods is His refusal to remain apart from those who fall short of his holiness. Thank God. 
And based on this, I think we might offer a working definition of, of holiness based on God's revealed character. Holiness is not the inward-facing preservation of purity, but the outward-facing radiating of God's transforming love. That's what God's holiness is to look like. And so, a temple fails to be holy in the way that God is holy. If it functions to exclude outsiders as possible contaminants while it shelters insiders within its protecting walls. This, I think, is what so enrages Jesus about the temple in Jerusalem. If you remember the stories about him going into Jerusalem and cleansing the temple, after upending the tables and driving the people out, he quotes Isaiah, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? What's wrong with that? what's happened in the temple? This was supposed to be for all nations. And from the very first promises delivered to Abraham, Israel was always intended to be a blessing to all nations, shining a light that draws them to worship God. And in his anger, Jesus laments that the temple has failed in its holy mission to radiate God outward in a way that brings all nations to glorify him. I think in some ways, the final vision in Revelation imagines something similar. Go look at, at the end of Revelation. The holy city comes down from heaven to be established in the new earth of God's new creation. And we're told, interesting, that there is no temple in this new city. But it's because, I think, that the whole city, or passively even the whole earth, has become God's temple. Right? The work that's beginning here in 1 Peter is coming to completion in Revelation. Right? Everything has become God's temple where his presence is keenly experienced. And one of the interesting things about this picture of a, of a city slash temple in Revelation is that, yes, it is holy. It is pure. Right? There is not impurity allowed in it. But it's not accomplished by somehow walling itself off from everything around it. There are gates that are never closed in this temple in the age to come where all the nations can come and bring their glory. That's the holy temple functioning as it was meant to do. And if this is the vision of God's ultimate holy temple in the age to come, then it gives his people living in the current brokenness of the present age something to aim for, something to shoot for. Returning to 1 Peter, we see, I think, the same holy mission outlined for God's people during their time of exile. They are to be a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. But, but to what end? In order that, Peter says, you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are, what are the spiritual sacrifices that these priests offer? Proclaiming the mighty acts of God. Those are the sacrifices that they offer. And he tells them again, they do these things, they offer these sacrifices, they are the holy priesthood, in order that those outside may see your honorable deeds and glorify God. That's the end. Right? Those are the, the sacrifices that these holy priests offer, declaring God's mighty acts, living in ways right, that show this radiating love that draws all the nations to come and glorify God. And so, MacArthur Park, Church of Christ, be the temple. And by that, I don't mean be the straight-laced, neatly polished, high-walled community that preserves purity by separating yourselves from those around you. That's not holiness, as God models it. No, I mean be the ragged-edged, crumbly-cornered people that God has chosen because you are precious to him and bonded together to be the holy community that radiates his love outward in a way that leads all people to glorify God. That's holiness. That's what it means to be a light on a hill. That's what it means to be a temple during your exile. That's what it looks like to flourish as God's people. So if you want to be part of this people, 
if you want to be one of the living stones stacked together into this temple, I hope it's clear that you don't need to be perfect. All you need is actually much harder. All you need is to be willing to die, to let go of all the things that you think will give you security, to stop building on the cornerstone of success, power, and reputation, because that ultimately leads to frustration and slavery, and instead to submit to the self-emptying love of the crucified Messiah as your plumb line, because that is true freedom and flourishing. You can start that building project this morning in a number of ways by following that pattern of our crucified Messiah. But one of the ways you can do that this morning is by being buried in the waters of baptism, dying to those fruitless attempts to provide for your own security, and through faith, relying on God alone for life. And he will give life. You are chosen and precious to him, and he wants to use you to build a spiritual house that will radiate his love to the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs>